0: the camera
1: that's right yeah okay (laughs) we are live okay make sure that we are streaming hello everybody um yeah we're good to go sweet how's it going everyone let's let this music cook up for a second what's up steven ignoramus here welcome to call me ignorant episode number 12 of call me ignorant May 24th, 2019, 1134 a.m. So please you could be with us. Call Me Ignorant is a live conversation show, whether with, with an interesting content creator, an expert in a field, or a fellow human being trying to spend spread a message. Call Me Ignorant will try to solve the problems of the world, conversationally speaking. We are streaming right now to YouTube, Twitch, Periscope, Mixer, DLive, and Picarto by looking for Steven Ignoramus. If you can't catch the show live, you can find it after the fact on the above mentioned platforms, also on BitChute. Call Me Ignorant is also available in podcast format on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Podbean. You can find me on Twitter at IgnoramusSteve or send me an email at StephenIgnoramus at gmail.com. Topic ideas, possible guests for the show, and things that I can look up are much appreciated. My guest today is Scott Cecil. Scott is an activist, a podcaster, and a newly elected city council member of Mount Mount Rainier, Maryland. His podcast, Prohibited, explores the impact of various forms of prohibition from cannabis, opiates and sex work all the way to plastic straws. His podcast takes an unflinching look at the policy outcomes of prohibition through conversations with those working to dismantle systems of prohibition, as well as those seeking to build and maintain them. You can find Prohibited on the various podcast platforms as well as at prohibitedpodcast.com and you can find Scott on Twitter at Scott Cecil. Good to have you on the show. How's it going, Scott?
0: I'm doing great. How are you?
1: Good, good. This is cool. Uh, Scott is in-house today. Usually our podcast guests are uh, over the interwebs and on video form, but Scott is here at my apartment. So um, my first question is, uh, what is, what's it like to hear someone say newly uh, elected city council member?
0: Uh feels pretty good. <laughs> this, you know, this was my first time running for office, and I got 93% of the vote <laughs> with no ballot opposition. I should add that. But yeah, it feels good.
1: Um, it was really good for people uh, listening out there uh, that aren't watching. You're a pretty young guy. Um, you said it's your first time running for office. Uh, what was, did you campaign? Did you uh, what did you do? Yeah, what was that like?
0: I did. I did okay. campaign. I campaigned less than I thought I would need to because again, I, I didn't have ballot opposition. I was the only person that qualified for the ballot, returning sig- the, the required number of signatures to make the ballot. Okay. So I did much less than I thought, and. Basically, my campaign was face-to-face interactions or I would have neighbors host their friends and they would invite me over to come meet folks and answer their questions. For context for people watching too, Mount Rainier is very small. Okay. It's bordering Washington, D.C. and Prince George's County, Maryland. It's less than a square mile. and has a population between eight and 9,000. Okay. So it's, it's, a, it's a small yeah. city and I think the total votes cast in the election – was around 500. Okay. And that's both for the seat I was running for and another seat in, in the other ward. Okay.
1: So, and you got 93% out of those 500?
0: I received 136 out of 146 votes cast.
1: Wow. Why don't you think... Yeah, I didn't have this right wrote down or anything, but why do you think that people don't vote at high percentages? Why do you think that? That's like zero people, like co- comparatively. Why, why do you think it's a matter of getting a message out or apathy... What do, you, what do you think about that?
0: I think you know why. I think everyone knows the answer to this question. It's, it's not as complicated as we like to portray it to be. Most people have lost faith in governmental institutions. Mm. They don't think that sending—a lot of people have lost faith in representative democracy, mm. right? There are a lot of what I would call undue influences on the political process, most of them stemming from money. And since there's such an imbalance in our society in terms of who holds most of the wealth, mm. uh, there are a, a small number of people and entities, legal entities like corporations that have very huge undue influence, mm. and most of us who don't hold a lot of capital feel like our influence is not as impactful, even though there are so many more of us mm. does that make sense?: yeah definitely yeah yeah. <laughs> I
1: mean, I, yeah I mean yeah I mean I definitely I definitely agree that there's a lot of uh, you know, undue influence and stuff like that. I, I you know, I, I, I've been thinking about that for a lot of years because I, um, probably started getting into politics around the time Citizens United was passed in 2011, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of started me on the on, on a journey. And I, you know, um, I owned my own company, you know, an LLC as a corporation. You know, it's a small one, of course, and I definitely, you know, I, um, I definitely agree that people have lost faith in democracy. And I, you know, think a lot about, um, you know, what democracy even is, whether what a vote even is. And it's, it's just, I just, I can't believe that it's, uh, even given that, that, uh, you know, that the numbers don't, that only, you know, only half the country voted for president, not the president matters the most. I, I I happen to think that local elections matter the most. Like city council people. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it it matters a lot, but to see that those type of numbers is just interesting. And I, you know, so what are your jobs? Do you know what your tasks are as a city council member are yet? Do you get briefed on that? Do you get a packet? Are you explained? Yet?
0: Yeah. I, yeah, I had an orientation, okay. um, which was a day long orientation, and also, and I want to say this too as a piece of advice for anyone else who out there is listening that's like, maybe I should run for city council. I, I promise you, I'm not. I don't live in the only city or town in the in in the country where someone's running on a post for a seat. Mm. So. What I did is when I moved to Mount Rainier a couple of years ago, I just started showing up to city council meetings as a resident, cool. right? So I knew, I understood what was going on. I knew what they were talking about. I had a feel for who the, the city council people were and I knew the issues well. I knew the issues as well as anyone because mm. I was attending those meetings, right? And uh, nice. what ended up happening is the incumbent sort of confided in me that she was thinking about not running. You know, she has an eight-year-old son and just, you know, is very busy. She's an attorney and she was like, hey, I, I would feel better about not running for this seat if I knew there was someone credible running. And so when I threw my hat in the ring, I was the only person that did. And so my advice there would be just go check out the scene where you live. Who is making decisions? Who are they? How long have they been there? Mm. How many people voted for them? Um, I want to go back to something you were saying before, though. So I don't don't mean to imply that I think people have lost faith in democracy in general. Mm. I think they've lost faith in the state of our democracy, the state of our political institutions. Mm -hmm. And that's not by accident. Mm. But it doesn't start with fixing. So I think this is this is the thing that I think most of us get wrong. It doesn't start, in my opinion, with trying to fix democratic institutions and hoping that that restores democracy down to all of us. And we feel like our voices are being heard and that government's responding to us, mm. it starts with cultivating a sense of democratic individuality. Why do I say that? If people learn about democracy and believe in its core values and incorporate that into their own lives, that would mean we would have communities of people that have strong sense of democracy. Mm. And if we have lots of communities that have a strong sense of democracy, then we'll have a nation and a society that has a strong sense of democracy. Mm. So I think it starts from the bottom up, yeah. not from the top down. yeah, yeah. And... The other thing is, we're tempted to make a move to blame the people that are in office mm-hmm. for, the, for the failure that is our political system, and I'm not saying they deserve no blame, but they don't deserve all of it. If you're a member of Congress, so let's say you're a member of Congress and I'm a gas and oil lobbyist, and, and you have to take a vote, you know, that's, that's something that's environmentally unsustainable, or not. All I, all I have to do as a lobbyist is come into your office and be like, Senator, if you vote against this bill, we're going to spend X millions of dollars against you, in your, in, your next camp, you know, in your next re-election campaign, and we can do it through a pack and nobody's even going to know that it's us. Mm. So do you really want to throw away your opportunity to do all the things you campaigned on just for this one vote? You can, do you really want to throw away your chance to follow through for the voters all these other things that you said you wanted to do? right? And so like, I guess what I'm trying to say is it, with, with the money and influence that's in politics, I don't think it's fair for us as citizens to expect for our senators to make, always make quote unquote the right decision. Right. Because does that make sense? Of course. Like it's it's rational. It's rational for some elected officials to be empty suits on some issues because they're trying to get other work done that they care about. You can't, you can't, just like we in our own lives have to pick our battles judiciously. Mm we can't die on every hill neither can a senator neither can a congressperson neither can a governor neither can a city council person
1: wow that's a good way of explaining it yeah i mean yeah you have to you have to please a lot of people you got to please and and that's what i you know i've been wondering for a while how i I don't know about that
0: stephen like so i've for for people watching i've been i got sworn into city council less than two weeks ago okay i think i think today's the 11th day very fresh yeah very fresh very recent yeah uh, so I'll come back and talk to you again later when it's been more than 11 days. Mm. I don't think that you do have to please everyone mm. because there's always, there are always mad people. Yeah. There are always angry people. Yeah. And a lot of time, and I, there are going to be people in Mount Rainier watching this being like, is he talking about me? Mm-hmm. A lot of time, the things they're complaining about what they're saying is incorrect. Mm. It's like it's like I understand that you're mad and there isn't an, there's a core issue here. Yeah. But like everything that you just said to me about it was wrong. Yeah. Right. And so you have to decide like, do I spend my time trying to explain to every person in the city what's actually happening so that they'll understand the moves I'm making, or do I just make the moves and right? Like it's it's a time thing as well. Of like, course. Is is am I best? Is my time best spent by trying to make residents happy? Mm. Well, I don't know. I think my time's best spent by like being transparent about what i'm doing but trying to actually do the work
1: Mm. yeah i mean do you think i i like i hope that we live in a world where if people just get the right information and know that it's correct that it'll 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 have positive change and stuff but it doesn't work that way i mean yeah i wish it did yeah so are you more i mean so what i meant earlier when i said you have to please a lot of people it's like there's just a lot of competing interests like, you know, yeah, and, and you trying to get them. I mean, I just I guess I just um, empathize with um, like when the more people that are your constituency, the more interests are there and how to balance that as well as your own values. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're the one that got elected, but also you're, you're a representative of the, of the people. I don't think I could ever do it. Um, maybe one day, 25 years, 30 years from now, I could do it. But it just seems like such a big problem. And people. um when people don't respond to correct information, I'm just like, Dude, this is impossible. So I'm here doing a stream on the internet, you know, pretty low pressure. Um, but I don't know Like, kudos to you for, for running for you're, you're one of the first people I've ever met in person that, um, that ran for office one and is, you know, um, under 40, you know, I know some politicians that are older and I, I and I'm, I know some senators, um, and I don't know. Um, how
0: Steven don't wait for 25 years to run. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm try- what I want to say is going to sound really like perpetuating generational conflict, mm-hmm. but for millennials, like the time for us to run and seize the reins of power is right now mm. because we don't need any more evidence to suggest that older generations that are currently in power – Are going to fail to do anything on climate change Mm. are going to fail to do anything on wealth inequality are going to fail to do anything to dismantle the patriarchy are going to fail to do anything to protect lgbt rights maybe i'm being a little bit too harsh on them but like we're the people that are going to have to especially when it comes to climate change us and and hopefully future generations if we leave them a habitable world so that they can thrive the time to come up with solutions to these problems is right now Mm. we don't have the luxury of waiting right and so Mm. Again, I really think here's what compelled me to get into this mindset. I remember having a conversation with someone about this under the influence of various chemical substances. And what I asked my friend was, if we live to be old men and and the worst predictions about or even not even the worst, many of the predictions about climate change come true. What are we going to say when young people ask us, why didn't you do anything about this? What were you doing that just allowed for you to ignore that this was happening? Mm. And I, this was years ago, and I still don't have a good answer to that question. So a lot of the work that I'm trying to do is even if, even if I fail, even if we as a society fail to step up to the plate and mitigate some of these catastrophes that we know are coming down the pike, I want to at least be able to answer the question honestly that I tried, and here's specifically what I tried to do, and here's why it didn't work. And I'm hoping that I'll, what I'll actually be able to say is here's what we did. Mm. Here's how we built Bridges and came together. And these were the solutions to these problems. And and to leave – we're going to leave a legacy no matter what. And right now, right now, today as people are watching this, right now is the time for us to decide which legacy we want to leave. Mm. And I know that sounds kind of corny or cheesy no, maybe to some people. But like, I really mean it's it, you true. guys. Like, yeah, I, my, my degree is in sustainability and ecological literacy. Cool. Granted, I went to community college. Yeah. But, A lot of people like to shit on community colleges, but I went to, I was in a really good program. Yeah. And, um...
1: I'm a college dropout. I don't even have a degree. So yeah, that's great. That's awesome. So I mean, yeah, we're going to get back to um, the city council stuff and the election stuff later. But um, you know, it was interesting when I was uh, reading like your bio earlier, you told me to list activist first. And so um, I want to give you a chance to, you know, first of all, why do you want me to put that first and a chance for you to tell your story about how you got to where you are. So um, how'd you get involved in culture, politics and change, community change, you know?
0: Yeah, thank you. This is also why I do my podcast. Is this is the the answer to your question? Is the same answer for that? Mm. So, I'll try to give the the short story. About ten years ago, while a passenger in a traffic stop, I was living in Arizona at the time, uh, in Maricopa County. Some people might know Sheriff Joe Arpaio. That's where.
1: I'm wow, really? So, like in the, the, holy the, shit, the, I was living in suburban <laughs> wow. Phoenix. <laughs> wow, um, that's insane.
0: As the passenger in a traffic stop. I was arrested for marijuana possession because I had moved there uh, as an, I was, I think I was, how old was I? I was 27 at the time. So it's not even like I was a young kid. I was an adult Mm. who happened to have less than a gram of marijuana. So for people who don't consume cannabis, that's, that has a dispensary or street value of like $10. Mm -hmm. Okay. A very small amount. It's Ob- practically nothing. It was, nothing. Uh, it was yeah. obviously <laughs> for personal yeah, use. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm from a, I'm from Nebraska originally, which this might surprise some folks to learn, was one of the first states to decriminalize possession of marijuana all the way back in 1976. The first was Mississippi. Wow. Because about 40 years ago, the strategy uh, for marijuana criminalization was we're just going to decriminalize possession. And they were successful in some states, including Nebraska. So I didn't realize that cannabis prohibition laws were so draconian in some places still. In Arizona it's a felony to have any amount of marijuana Um, a class 6 felony they do have a medical program now which passed by voter initiated ballot initiative Mm. but it's still a felony for everyone else if you don't have that medical card so uh, not realizing this and not knowing my rights I allowed to be myself to be searched, mm. thinking that it would be because I'd been caught with, with weed before when I lived, you know, back in back in Omaha, and it was I didn't get arrested. I got it's like a traffic ticket, basically. I had to show up to court and pay a hundred dollar fine mm. plus like some court fees or whatever, mm. which is still totally pointless and ridiculous. But I was expecting something like that, and and what I actually got was being facing charges, two class six felony charges each of which is punishable by a maximum of $1,000 fine and up to a year in jail. Whoa. Because that, that's the difference between a felony and a misdemeanor felony for people out there watching that might not know. A felony carries a minimum of a year in jail mm. pretty much everywhere in the United States. Yeah. So I was able to plead out of those, but what I came to figure out later was law enforcement in the area specifically targets college students. So I had gone back to school in my late 20s while I was living in AZ, and the reason they target college students is because they have to say yes to like the shittiest plea deal the prosecutor will offer you yeah because trapped. because yeah. you can't you don't want to say yes to the felony yeah because you risk losing your financial aid or losing scholarships and that sort of thing so they give you the shittiest plea deal possible which is what i got so i i pled guilty to like a class three misdemeanor for marijuana paraphernalia. Because by the way, I keep mentioning two felonies. The second felony was for having a resonated pipe in my backpack also, by the way. That's that that's so threatening to society, I know. But so my punishment was a year of probation, which I had to pay $80 a month for. And I also had to call a phone number every day where if they said my color, which was maroon, yeah, I would have to report to a drug testing facility that day by 7.30 p.m., and pay, which I had to pay for the drug test each time, which was $38 each time. And, so, and I had to pay a court fine of $1,342.50. So suffice it to say, I lost thousands of dollars. Right. Um, I had to cut down to only going taking one class for the next two semesters so that I would be able to like, make it to the drug testing if I had to, to have the money to cover like, all these expenses that I wasn't po- planning on having. And the other thing that was absurd, well, two, two other things. I was also being tested for legal drugs like alcohol, even though I was over 21, and it yeah. had nothing to do with my arrest. I've heard about that. That's ridiculous. And yeah. I also had to – so not only was this impacting my pocketbook and my personal autonomy, but I also had to repeatedly reveal my genitals to a stranger who would watch me urinate into a container. Mm. So like you step into a small room. And on one side of you is a mirror, but it's on their side. It's like that two-way mirror thing where they can, they can see you. And then on your other side is another mirror because the person needs to make sure they can see both sides of your penis to make sure that you're not using fake urine. And they make you pull your pants down to your knees like a little boy and, like, hold your, hold your T-shirt up under your chin like when you're a little boy, like, learning how to go, to, go, to go potty at the toilet. They make you do that so you know it just it was humiliating and it was enraging and Mm -hmm. so i think i'm I'm taking up too much time no 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 i I just basically going through this process i became resolved i was like this is totally like my, my rage eventually just turned into like this is such a joke yeah and I decided rather than like allowing the, that rage to like damage me and allowing all of the, the economic hardships I was experiencing and the embarrassment and the alienation and the depression that I was experiencing because of this, I could either allow that to like sink me or I could find a way to channel it into something positive. Mm. And so I decided I'm not going to rest until this doesn't happen to people anymore. Mm. And I got involved with an organization called Students for Sensible Drug Policy, which is the largest grassroots grassroots youth organization in the world working to end the war on drugs and I became a student activist for them uh was very active in the state of Arizona including at the state legislature and, and various other places I worked on a medical cannabis PTSD study for the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies mm-hmm. and then in 2014 I moved here to, D- to Washington DC mm-hmm. to work for SSDP wow and did so that that's for what about brought four you years here so SSDP. that's what brought me here wow. and yeah I mean for the last 10 years basically I've been working as an activist against the war on drugs. Mm. So the other thing I want to say before I let you ask me more questions mm. is what I wasn't expecting. So I went into this understanding that the war on drugs was bad, right? And, and knowing that it wasn't just about cannabis prohibition that we needed to fix. Mm. But I didn't go into, go into it believing we need to legalize all drugs. We need to legalize sex work. We need to have supervised consumption spaces for people who are using injection based drugs and other substances we need to you know I didn't know what harm reduction was I didn't know what drug checking was now I understand so I, I came to understand that the problem is drug prohibition the thing that makes drugs potentially dangerous is drug prohibition Mm. and so yeah i think Mm. i've said enough i've been on this journey for about 10 years with hundreds of other amazing activists all over the united states and 30 other countries through ssdp Mm. trying to end what really is a global war on drugs that's led and perpetuated by the united states government
1: yeah and it's uh yeah it's a yeah it's certainly a global thing i mean we you know we i mean you you think about stuff from the 80s when you know we were um i think it was reagan and bush were uh you know on, on one hand uh, they had the drug war going but they were already but they were all, all they were sponsoring people who are bringing crack into communities and it like their cia operations to sponsor drugs coming into america and it's it's this global chain that um yeah it's an international thing and um man that's a that's a crazy story and you know i've so that's – so SSDP is the name of the organization that you currently work for now, or, or are you, do you are you still affiliated with them? I
0: don't work for them anymore. Okay. I did for about four years. I'm now a member of the Alumni Association, though. Okay. And so you know I wear my SSDP hat in, in various different venues and mm-hmm. do my best to try to mentor the current students. Um, yeah. That was my job as a staff member. I was an outreach coordinator, so I worked directly with student activists all over the United States um, trying to change drug policies, everything from like – the campus level, like literally inside your dorm room to what's happening on campus. Some students focus on what's happening in my city or my county. Others are, you know, if they're, especially if their college or university is in a state capital, mm. they'll focus on what's happening at our state legislature. We bring students, or I say we, well, yeah, it's still we. I'm an alumni. We mm. bring students here to DC almost every year to lobby Congress on drug policy related issues. And then we're also an NGO at the United Nations oh. and work on international drug policy. Specifically, annually at the Commission on Narcotic Drugs in Vienna, Austria.
1: Mm, yeah, wow. so it's
0: it's it's at all level. It's really at all levels.
1: Cool. And it, so, is that is that like, for lack of a better word, professional activism? Like, I mean, or I mean, it's paid. So it's not all. And, and they have volunteers as well. Mm-hmm. But you know, so it's an it's a it's an NGO. Yeah,
0: everyone is a pay, is an unpaid volunteer. Okay, except for the staff. Okay, so it's, it's a five hundred one c three nonprofit yeah. with a board of directors. Yep, but there's a paid staff, which at any given time, in in the last five years since they first hired me, we had anywhere from five to like maybe a dozen people at any given time, and it it changes with flux. There are different fellowships, internships, or like the staff is larger during campaigns and ballot initiatives and that sort of thing wow. but it's it's just a handful of people that are really running the ship at, at this type of organization folks might be surprised to hear this in terms of folks who are working explicitly and exclusively on drug policy reform and we're not talking necessarily pharmaceuticals we're talking about ref- ending the drug war yes they're trying to dismantle the drug war yes i would say that there are for sure less than a fewer than 100 people in dc that are doing that Mm. and the the number may even be fewer than 50 right and like and i know most of those people that's that's why i'm confident because it's, it's such a small number of people so it's really i mean we're dwarfed by by most other realms of of advocacy on the on capitol hill yeah despite that so and this is another uh learning moment for anyone who's watching if you're an activist or you want to get involved in activism you one way that it's it can be hard to know if you're, what you're doing is working. Yeah. And one way that you can tell. Yeah, I was wondering about is, that. Yeah. It one way that you can tell, which I can point to right now, that's which is true of of Congress and people that are running for president right mm-hmm. now. The people in office or the people running for office will sound like you sounded five years ago. Yeah. Right. And that's so, a like, good point. Think about yeah. it. Almost every person running for the Democrat, almost every person running for the Democratic nomination for president right now, and it's like twenty five people the vast majority of them are saying things like, not only do we need to end the war on drugs, but we need reparations for people who have been arrested and we need to infuse like racial equity into the cannabis industry. And like These are not things that people were even talking about. These aren't even things that drug policy reformers were necessarily pushing for seven years ago when mm. we passed legalization in Colorado. Yeah, That was more of a like, let's show that ending cannabis prohibition works. And so there wasn't a lot of discussion about racial equity and... Expunging people's records, but it's nice to see that those conversations are happening more now, mm. although we need to do a lot more. Yeah. I know I kind of opened like seven, seven, that's fine. Passages, yeah. So. No,
1: we got plenty of time. Um, so let me actually go back a little bit. One of the things I, uh, I ask to, I try to ask all my guests because I'm trying to get people from all walks of life, all political backgrounds, stuff is what was, uh, talking about, um, Cultural and political issues like growing up because it, at me at the dinner table, we didn't talk about anything. Yeah. So did you you know, how was there a, a day that you got, you know, was it was it before you got in trouble that you got into talking about these things? Or like, what was your background like in this area? Yeah. You
0: know? Thank you for asking that. It's yeah. a, that's a really good question. I think I get it from my parents. OK, not cool. I think I know that I get it from my parents Great. to to a certain degree, my grandparents. I was raised by a single mother. Mm-hmm. My dad is formerly incarcerated. He was oh, okay. federally incarcerated at 17, wow. charged as an adult. Wow! And so, uh, and that was this was before he and my mother even knew each other. Mm. But you know, he's had a very hard life because of that. Um, he never has made a lot of money because the, the types of jobs you can get as a as a convicted felon are are not they're not plentiful. We'll yeah, put it that way, sure. right? But you know, to his credit, he's always carried a job since getting out of prison and has worked really hard and. Finally just retired last year. He's 67, Um, but never has had a lot of money, you know, so, but I didn't really grow up with him around, Okay, although we're very, very close now. Mm -hmm. Um, I I started living with him when I was like 17 and we were able to forge an amazing relationship and he's an amazing person and has been through a lot. But I was raised by my mother who also has been through many trials and tribulations. She was always very opinionated about politics, but is also a very brilliant woman Mm. and would, would talk about these sorts of things to me and my brothers and sisters. Uh, especially when she was a struggling single mom, working and trying to go back to night school, you know, to be able to make money to, to support and take care of our family, she would talk about the economic hardships that she was experiencing, and talk about, you know, the unresponsiveness in some ways of of communities and of political systems. And those are things that were just natural conversation in our household. Mm-hmm. Um, to cool. the extent that you asked, if, was there a day or a, a moment in time? Yeah, uh, my mom and I still joke about this now. In 1988, so I'm 37, I was six years old, I was in first grade during the George H.W. Bush and Michael Dukakis mm-hmm. race in 1988, wow. um, and I remember getting in trouble for sneaking out of bed to, like, watch the election returns, like, multiple <laughs> times, to where my mom finally was just like, okay, you can just come out here, right, yeah. and then I just, like, fell asleep, you know, on her lap or with her on the couch yeah. while the election was happening, and we still joke about it now, because she's like, what six-year-old, Yeah, you know, like... First of all, cares about this, but, like, knows the issues. <laughs> but, I mean, like, I remember as a six-year-old, as, as somebody who's biracial, and I'm not really sure that I thought of myself with that identity marker when I was six. Right. Maybe I did. Yeah. But I remember seeing the Willie Horton ads for people who are listening that might not know what that is. Yeah. The Bush campaign put this ad out against mm-hmm. then-Massachusetts governor, Mike, Michael Dukakis, saying that, like, he supports – he wants to let people who – Uh, murder folks out of prison because there was a man who, like, they they did some kind of program where you could be released for short term to, like, visit people, Mm -hmm. and someone did that and then committed a murder. Okay. And so they put this really scary, racially charged commercial on tv to basically scare people mm. into like hey if you if you it's it's basically to scare old white people right like if you vote for mike dukakis there's going to be black murderers in your neighborhood trying mm. to kill you right mm. this is not a new trope but i remember seeing that as a six-year-old and maybe not really understanding all the context but being really scared and disturbed by the message that i was seeing because mm. so i was like oh this guy looks like my dad or my brother or my uncles and and they're not murderers and you know what i mean like even yeah. as a six-year-old i understood interesting what was happening there and so that's kind of the moment where i i realized hey like people people are receiving messages and those messages are either going to be good or bad or those messages are either going to be true or untrue right and i just became fascinated with the world that is it's basically we call it public relations Mm. but it's
1: propaganda Mm. interesting So that's young man six six seven wow yeah, I've gotten everything. Yeah, that's yeah. That, I know it's weird. I mean, I get, didn't get into this stuff till 24. I'm 31 right now, so 24, 25, and um, I had uh, um, uh, a dude in the Navy named uh, Michael Autryon, who's kind of a I don't know. He he probably would be bothered by me saying this, because he's not a technically a sorry, com- Michael. Yeah, I mean, he's he's not like a. A registered constitutional expert but he has a podcast on the constitution and and interpretations of, and, of that and um i think he got uh into that at maybe age 21 anything from but yeah six seven eight that's young man wow so you you've been been awake to this stuff for a long time that's that's good to know um i hope
0: i'm not just romanticizing my childhood i want people fine. to think that i was like you know, some super genius that you, was like a you, political philosopher. You got a quill at out and ink inqu- no, um, Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it, it's gonna sound cliche, but it, you know, it really does come from my parents. It's something that my mom cool. cared about, and so it was. It became one of my values as well, right?
1: Mm, Sweet. What other organizations are you affiliated with, um, other than S- SSDP, right yeah. now? Yeah.
0: Thanks for asking yeah. that. I actually co-founded a nonprofit last year
1: called the Rights
0: Restoration Project. Cool. You can find us online as well, or if, if you find me on social media or elsewhere, like Steven told you, uh, I'll, I'll point you in the right direction. But the Rights Restoration Project uh, is a nonprofit organization, and we help people. We provide online digital resources and printed resources for people with criminal records mm. to either help them seek expungement or record sealing, and then we also help those with criminal records determine their voting eligibility, and if they are ineligible to vote, help them restore their voting rights. So we don't we don't actually do the direct work, but what we do is we provide resources that we send to allied organizations, whether that be like a, their brick and mortar facility, or we send them the you know the digital resources that we have for them to share with their networks, mm. as a way of helping folks with criminal records be able to try to mitigate some of the impacts that of, of being formerly incarcerated.
1: Okay, wow! And so is that's the RRP? Yeah, RRP cool? Rights Restoration. Sweet. Project. So yeah. I, I'm uh, um. Oh, dang it. Sorry. Let me open this different one. Um, so I was trying to show people that right now. Um, so rights. Oh,
0: let me give you the correct.
1: So we changed the name of the organization. Mm-hmm. If
0: you go to caniexpunge.org, all okay. one word, that's the, current, that's the website domain. So the, the organi- my co-founder, his name is James. Hi, James, if you're watching. Hmm. Probably he isn't, but maybe I'll show him this later. Yeah. Uh, the, our chairman of the board and my friend James Gould created the organization and brought me on as his second board member. And now now we have seven. But I helped him uh, one of the thing one of the first things we did with our original group of the three is we changed the name. Mm. So that it was a little bit more accessible. Okay. And we gotcha. also wanted to change our scope. So can I expunge is just one of our is now the name of one of our programs slash campaigns. Hmm. But yeah, that's our official website and folks can find information
1: there. Cool. Yeah. And that's uh org and then uh, that website for SSDP is just SSDP.org. So students for sensible drug policy. Cool. That's awesome. Any any other organizations or um you, you what is uh you know you talked about it before what is catharsis on the mall oh, for yeah. people out there. Yeah. Thanks for yeah, I that? can't believe I forgot that one yeah, yeah.
0: so for folks who may be aware of Burning Man, mm-hmm. which is an annual event that takes place in Black Rock City, Nevada, out in the desert, where essentially folks come together once a year for a series of days. There are, some people are there for months, but they basically build a bunch of art installations and set a huge temple on fire and engage in cathartic activities. Mm. Uh, so Catharsis on the Mall is in the spirit of Burning Man. We operate under the 10 principles of Burning Man. Folks can Google those if they want to see what they are. Okay. But essentially, this is a miniature Burning Man-esque event on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. One big difference between this and most burns, as they're called, is that people are not camping there. So you okay. can't do that on the National Mall. Yeah. But essentially, we bring together the community here in D.C. and people from all over the U.S. and even other countries to engage in a weekend of healing it's catharsis on the mall A vigil for healing is the full name Mm. so it's a themed event each year we change the the theme and we invite artists and activists from all over the u.s. to come to the event with various art installations or sometimes you know there are different there are different what are called theme camps that either provide food or education or simply just art or all of the above to other attendees of the event and then of course since it's on the national mall there are constantly tourists walking by that, mm. that just stumble upon this and like, what is this? And there's everything from, you know, lectures that you can listen to, to yoga, to fire spinning. Um, and it's a really wow. great event.
1: Cool. And so, and is this... uh it is it, are, are some of the same people Bur- burning man is is decentralized a little bit right you know like is there a, a board and people in charge of that or, or how does that how does burning man actually work my old landlords went to burning man that's about all i know about it other than you know the obvious stuff like you just explained and you, you it's in the desert you clean up after yourself it works on the barter system but how does that all get organized like because it's old right how it's been it's been was it since the 70s that, oh, i'm so embarrassed that
0: i don't know the exact number not quite that long. okay okay but to answer the, the first question i don't know you know very i don't know into the intimate details of the organizational structure of yeah, yeah. burning man but yes they do have some sort of board or governing body and they also have what are called regional contacts okay so like for example there are i believe five regional contacts for burning man here in washington dc okay one of them happens to be my, uh, my romantic partner um but yeah, so, so that's I, a lot of what I know about Burning Man I've learned through him because he's very involved. I've never been to Burning Man. I'm planning on going next year in 2020 for the first time. Okay. But, you know, we'll see. Wow. It, it takes a lot. I mean, you, you, you have to bring – you've got you've to ship everything that you need there, mm-hmm. right, and then get it there being usually California or, or some or Reno or somewhere in Vegas, and then you have to find a way to get it to Black Rock City and then wow. get it back, right? And, and when you're shipping it back – and bringing yourself and your items back, you're covered in Playa, which mm. is the name for the dust that yeah. is found in that
1: region. Wow. that's intense yeah so you're going to that wow that's insane yeah definitely want to um you know definitely you know you're welcome on the show anytime but if we don't meet again uh this year want to get you back on tell me about burning man whatever you're totally
0: and if you want to do a burning man episode there there are people who know so much more about it that Mm. i can just connect you with cool
1: all right sweet that's awesome so you mentioned um you know we uh me and you i i on the um the interview show I, i i don't I tend to not want to get into my opinions too much. Um, I I like to make it about the, the guest and stuff like that, but we, we, me, you and I definitely share a common goal of wanting to end the drug war. Um, That's been a thing that's been on my mind for a long time, but what, what other goals of yours do you see um, as an activist and advocate? Like what are, yeah. What are your long-term goals? If you could flick a switch and have something be done today, other than uh, ending the drug war, what do you see as your goals?
0: Oh man, (laughs) I'm, I'm tempted to answer this question two different ways, mm-hmm. so maybe I'll do both. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll answer Please. the question first in terms of what I think could happen in terms of public yeah, policy. The,
1: there's always the pragmatic and then yes. the genie in the bottle approach. Yeah, yeah so I definitely absolutely. want to know both. Yeah,
0: um, I think there are two – well, it's hard to discern how many different threads are their own individual thread that needs to be – unraveled for lack of
1: that was a poorly constructed metaphor but yeah people, people will get it i think of it like a water balloon when you're squeezing really? it and it comes out one end like, and you put it yeah down those and ones it, that like bloop yeah the other exactly side. yeah
0: this is gonna sound so cliche and like new age wishy-washy mm-hmm. but a lot of the issues that we see as being intractable are interconnected okay right so one of the things i've learned as as an activist against ending drug prohibition for the last decade or so I've learned some of the connections to how it connects to LGBT rights or racial injustice or economic injustice or housing injustice or whatever it might be. So the broad strokes answer to your question is, I see, my, I see myself as someone who is not a lone agent trying to dismantle all these things. I would like to be a part of building communities of people that are determined to dismantle various forms of injustice. Mm. So for me personally, I think economic injustice is a big one. As somebody who, who grew up in poverty, has experienced homelessness, both mm. as you know, I lived in a homeless shelter with my family for a little for a while when wow. I was a little kid. Wow. Um, I've been homeless as an adult, you know, where it was like making decisions between sleeping outside or like trying to ask another friend if I could sleep on their couch for a few nights. I've been there, right? Yeah, me too, um, yeah. And there's no, there's no technical reason whatsoever why there should be anyone, not only in our society, but really globally there's no technical reason whatsoever why anyone should be without food and housing, right? Like, the number of resources that are produced and the number of resources that are available are enough for us to have a a, a basic standard of living for everyone. Mm. So then it bears the question, what are the forces that prevent that from happening? And those are each of those issue areas that I mentioned before. It's racial injustice, housing injustice, uh, you know, injustice for people in the LGBT community, particularly trans people, particularly trans people of color, and discrimination against women. I mean there are there are institutionalized forms of discrimination that are built that are baked into the cake of our how could they not be? I mean our society was formed several hundred years ago where even the most well-meaning person had a set of values that we would see mostly as archaic now. And one only hopes, by the way, that several hundred years from now things will have still been improving Mm. and folks will look back and be like, man, people in the early 20th century really had no idea what was going on. And in many ways we don't. I feel like I'm not really answering your question. No, that's fine. Yeah. You know, you're you're doing fine. Dismantling forms of injustice is is what I see my role as, but I, but I would never be so presumptuous as to claim that I can do it alone. Yeah. Right. So a lot of time when, and again, I'm only 11 days in, but as I was running for this city council seat and, and since I've been in office, if, if someone asks me, "Well, what are you going to do, what are you going to do to attract more businesses to Mount Rainier?" And I just am honest with them, I'm like, I'm not. You know, like, mm. I, because, why is my answer I'm not? Because I can't do it alone. Mm. But what I can do is like be a leader in the process of building com- a community that can attract businesses, right? And so I, I, would, I, I hope maybe it's naive and maybe I'll I'll never hold office again after this four-year term is up because of the strategy I'm taking. It's four years. My strategy ahead. is, like, yeah. I just want to be honest with people and be like, hey, I hear you. What you're identifying is a problem, but I can't fix it for you. What yeah. I can do, though, is, like, try to exercise restraint but also good policymaking and then try to be the catalyst or a catalyst for building democratic community and democratic individuality like I talked about earlier.
1: Mm. Okay. So, yeah. So, so eliminating various forms of injustice, ending the drug war. I mean, not that that's a city council members, like you can't, no city council member can end the drug war. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a federal, that's basically a federal policy. Who, who declared war on drugs? Was it Nixon? The modern drug war was
0: declared by Richard Nixon, yeah. but there are different, there are many different Nixon. forms of ramping it up. Yeah. Right. So the, the, the way we ended up in a situation of mass incarceration that we're in now really started around 1980 around the time Ronald Reagan, I guess Reagan took office in January of 1981. Yep. So in the eighties we saw the building of more draconian laws. And then again in the nineties under the Clinton administration, there was a second wave of punitive measures because the Democrats were trying to, many centrist Democrats like Bill Clinton and like, um, Here's my chance to attack one of the presidential candidates, Joe Biden mm-hmm. specifically was a big part in helping to, you know, pass mandatory minimum sentences, for example, yeah. and, and pushing for a lot of the, a lot of actually. Let me let me circle back to SSDP really quick, mm-hmm. just because sure. any of those folks who are watching are going to be like, why aren't you talking about SSDP more?
1: Yeah, it's cool how these things are all kind of connected. Yeah, it's this, history, policy, culture. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. This is, I
0: hope this is a good example, yeah. an interesting example for listeners in 1998, which is one of the few times in modern American history where a sitting president, especially in their second term, ga- their party gained seats in Congress. Okay. And the reason that happened was largely because the president was being impeached at that time mm-hmm. and but he was very popular and so most people saw the Republicans, you know, uh them being Determined to impeach him they saw that as being a waste of time. They wanted them to focus on working with the president getting things done So the president was unusually popular his his party gained seats in the Congress And one of the first things they did after they gained seats in Congress in 1998 Was they changed the higher education act to say that if you had been convicted of a drug crime You were not eligible for financial aid Mm -hmm. And that's actually why one of the main reasons why ssdp started Mm. 20 21 years ago because it was college students who were getting busted, being like, "Now I can't go to school because I don't have financial aid." And they started to organize online, and then fast forward to 20 years later, you have this organization that's working on the global level, mm. trying to dismantle the drug war. But you know, it was in that case, that's an example of like that was Democrats that crafted and passed that law, not Republicans. Mm. And it, you know, it's a, it's a problem that because because Democrats saw it as being politically advantageous to not appear to be weak on crime because they were getting clobbered by Republicans on that for decades, right, since the 70s. Yeah. It wasn't just that Nixon was – he wasn't really running against drugs because drugs are bad. He was doing something that people on the right have done all throughout modern American politics, which is to use fear to motivate a certain segment of the population to vote for them. Mm. And I don't even want to say, I feel like I'm all over the map with this answer, but I also want to say, like, it's not only a modern phenomenon. Yeah. That thread, so everything from Trump wanting to, saying that we're going to build a wall, Mm. using xenophobia against, you know, people from, from Central America and elsewhere, that thread can be traced through everything that we were just talking about all the way back to before the founding of the country. Because one of the ways that wealthy, mostly cis white male landowners were able to take power in the 1600s the 1700s was they had most of the wealth they owned most of the stolen land that we had taken from indigenous people and the way they maintained their elevated position was making sure that poorer whites felt elevated above everyone else right so it's it's segmenting the population by creating a hierarchy so in our culture in our society starting from colonial times all the way to now that hierarchy is built on racial hierarchy so the function of racial hierarchy is to create infighting among the, among the populace and fear among the populace so that the small, tiny number of people who own everything, so that our, our, our ire and anger and our you know, spotlight is not pointing at them. Mm. We're pointing it at each other, right? And, like, that's not by accident. That's been part of the design for 400-plus years, and that's the design right now.
1: Wow. Wow. Okay. It's interesting. All right. Sweet. I mean, yeah, like so I mean, uh, we could talk for, you know, we could talk Whatever. for a really long time about all this stuff. But I I, I want to get into your podcast because nah, uh, that, that's, um you know, one of my first uh, podcast guests was uh, um Kevin Capasso, who is your music, the musical director for your podcast. And, you know, that's he kind of linked us up. And, um, and we
0: need to sorry to interrupt you again. We need to change our outro because Kevin Capasso is actually also. One of the editors, so Oh, he's really? bas- he's
1: basically the co-editor of the podcast. Cool. At this time. So yeah. he's part of the team. Absolutely. That's cool. Yeah. Great. Nice. All right. it's And I think that was podcast number four of Call Me Ignorant, and that was that was really good. We we pulled up a bunch of stuff on the. Um, we actually talked about your podcast a lot and pulled up some of these same websites. Um. So you, you know, you explained earlier that part of the reason you started this was your activism and and uh, you mentioned earlier that you wanted to decriminalize. Uh, cannabis before you started but you 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 touch on all kinds of prohibition in the podcast and uh when i you know tell people about your podcast you know it you get very cliche responses where it's like weed alcohol like people think about uh cannabis and they think about prohibition of the 20s but um I don't know. I I kind of don't know where to start. But what what other um what other things are prohibited in our society? I mean, a lot. Anything illegal is prohibited. But what other things have you touched on in your in your podcast?
0: Thanks. Yeah. So most of the, actually, all of the episodes we've done so far in this first season. Mm-hmm. And are, you operate on seasons, correct? Correct. Yeah, okay. So we're awesome. doing. Uh, we're in in the midst of a, our first season, which is twelve episodes. Okay. Um, we're putting out content a little less frequently than we, than we were when we first started out and that's really just a, a, a time thing mm-hmm. but to, answer, to try to answer your question most of our episodes and I think all the episodes remaining the three remaining are mainly focused on forms of drug prohibition mm-hmm. although we have touched on other subjects like gambling sex work Maryland where I live recently was the first state to ban styrofoam to-go containers at yeah. restaurants for example Maybe, yeah. I don't know if you've been listening but you probably heard us talk about that a few weeks mm-hmm. ago Yeah, but So when I decided to do this podcast, at first I was going to do a podcast about ending the drug war. And I was like, well, I know all these folks all over the country. Let me just interview people that are trying to end the drug war. But I started, when I started, when I sat down to to write the show, to write an intro for the show and start recording, I realized that I wanted to look at prohibition more broadly Mm. because there are folks who out there who would say, well, prohibition just doesn't work. And that's a lot. I think that's, basically true Mm. but is it always true Mm. like is it is it is it the same thing to ban heroin is that the same as banning plastic bags or plastic Mm. straws i'm pretty sure it's not yeah right i think i think that there's something there's some middle ground or some spectrum that's more nuanced than prohibition works and prohibition doesn't work yeah right so what i'm hoping the body of work of this show is of this podcast is is we present listeners with different perspectives on various forms of prohibition so that as we move forward, when we're having public policy co- conversations about prohibition, that we're doing so in a way that's more nuanced than it does work or it doesn't work. Yeah. Because banning plastic straws and banning opiates and banning military style weapons, those I think are different conversations. Mm. And I think most people think they're different conversations. And unfortunately, this is one issue area where most of the noise comes from different entrenched ideological sets of voices Mm. where there's a huge swath of the population that exists between those polar opposites or those spectral opposites Mm. that could I think we would come to better outcomes, better policy outcomes, and more importantly, better life outcomes for people with the right sets of policies. Mm. And so criminalizing people for for sex work or selling drugs or using drugs or gambling, not only does that not prevent those things from happening, it makes it more dangerous for everyone involved and it makes it more dangerous for the public at large. Mm. The reason I start the podcast by asking people when I, when you hear the word prohibition, what do you think of? Do you think of the roaring twenties and gangsters like yeah. Al Capone? I say that because that's what I think of. That's the the first schema that pops into mind for me. Right. But it's, there, it's so much broader than that. But the reason that's also an important example to start with is because it's one that I, I hope we're mostly universal agreed on, ag- universally agreed on the, in the United States that alcohol prohibition was an abysmal failure. Right. And that what it did was create organized crime, violence, and instability in communities all over the country. Mm. If we understand that that clearly about alcohol, why does that not translate to every other substance that we prohibit because it works exactly the same mm. and the the reason that the reason that you if if you go to the if we if we went to a liquor store right now and bought a couple bottles of liquor we wouldn't we would know exactly what we were getting mm. because it's been regulated mm. the, it's labeled with what's in there and you have to be a certain age to get it and that sort of thing well, when you put something into the black market, none of yeah. those things I just listed are true. There's yeah. there's nobody you don't know you don't necessarily know what you're getting. You don't know whether or not it's been adulterated, you don't know how potent it was, you don't know where it came from. So as a consumer, you can't make any choices to protect yourself, and you can't make any choices that would make that a a, co- a commodity that's being traded economically viable and economically beneficial to to everyone in your community like you do for anything else that you pay sales tax on or that is that is regulated by some sort of body. Mm. And so yeah, I mean, it's, it's that simple. Prohibition of things like sex work, drugs, etc. It makes those activities more dangerous and it causes problems that affect everyone and many other segments of society. Now, hmm. is that true for plastic bags or plastic straws? I don't think so. I think that yeah. that, that has an, an impact on the factories and the, the huge corporations that make billions of plastic bags. Yeah. And it, might even, it may even be trillions, who knows, yeah. of plastic bags and plastic we'll straws never know. every year. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Those, those things are different. Yeah. It,
1: it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, I, you know, I, in my opinion, I, I just don't uh, think that at the end of the day, I don't think that it's government's right to tell people what they can put in our, our body. And that, it seems like a pretty, um pretty slam dunk case for maybe not, maybe not slam dunk, but not that complicated, but the plastic bag and creation of things mm-hmm. for like storage out of which product that's that's pretty complicated mm-hmm. is whether that just the whole conversation of what's in it whether like um you know people litter that sucks um and it it, it it's funny what the more i think about it it seems like the the most harmless quote-unquote harmless one of them is the most complicated one of just like styrofoam plastic mm-hmm. straws and <laughs> it makes me laugh because people talk about drugs and prostitution the most out of prohibition but it's like what things are made of and where we get the materials sourced from. And I don't know. It, if, it,
0: if you're on the fence about plastic bags or, you know, styrofoam or things of that nature, yeah. go, to, go to a landfill. Yeah. You know, and I'm going to start lecturing people who are watching us again. But, like, if you have never been to a landfill, then your, your position on what we should go. or should not yeah. ban is uninformed. Yeah, go. go if, to a if landfill. If you have never spoken to a marine biologist or been to... You know, seeing how much trash is in our waterways yeah. and in the ocean and things of that nature, your position on, on these issues is uninformed. Yeah. It just is. Yeah. And it goes back to that question, you know, that I, that I asked myself before that I posed. In 50 years, if, you know, in 70 years, if I'm still alive, I'm an old man. Yeah. You know, I, I, I guess I won't be alive in 70 107? years. That would make me over 100, but that'd you would be the the shit. If like, I'm, if I'm still awesome. alive in 50 years, which I think is likely, you know, yeah. many of my family members live to be in their 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. So if I'm still alive in 50 years, Hopefully. Um, what's my answer going to be when people ask, why didn't you protect our waterways? Mm. What were you doing? You needed, a plastic, you needed the convenience of a plastic bag so much that it was worth it for you mm. to destroy the ocean mm. and, to, and to allow for that ecosystem to collapse. Um, that's just not a good answer to that mm. question. It just isn't. Yeah. And so even if people think that I'm wrong here and they're like, you have no right to tell companies what they can, maybe you're right about that. But you know what we also don't have a right to do? To destroy the ecosystem yeah. for future generations. To continue ushering in what is what is a global mass extinction event. Mm. I mean, there, there are consequences to the things that we're doing right now. Yeah. And we need to take ownership of that. Um, mm. I'll, I'll go even further and say, like, even for folks in, like, some of the circles that I would run in when it comes to environmental issues we even tend to be having the wrong conversation or we even, we even, I, in my opinion, tend to be trying to initiate the wrong conversation because the conversation we're usually trying to have is we need to spread awareness about climate change and we need to spread awareness about ecological collapse and agricultural practices, etc. so that if we get people the right information, then we'll start making better decisions. Well, I hope that's true. I have some pretty compelling evidence to believe that it's not. Mm. But that's that's not the only way to go. The conversation that we need to be having is not spreading awareness about what's happening it's we need to be preparing ourselves for the impending ecological catastrophes that we know are coming yeah right and i know that sounds really alarmist and scary and like but like it's the truth i mean it's mathematically gonna happen talk to a scientist yeah go to a local university or like go listen to a lecture at a local university or community college or library talk to somebody who is a climate scientist or does study glaciers or is a marine biologist they will tell you talk to a farmer talk to somebody who talk to someone who goes hiking meet mm-hmm. an old man in your community who's been hiking the forest near your house for 40 years he'll tell you what's different about it yeah. and this is something that's this is a problem that's present in every biosphere or not, there's only one biosphere on earth that's present in every biome mm-hmm. that's present everywhere mm-hmm. and you know we've got to own up to it we're wow. doing, we're doing a lot of damage and um it's really it's immoral and unfair not only to you know future generations of humans but every other species on this planet all mm. of whom are our cousins and we should respect
1: let's talk about cannabis okay yeah let's talk about cannabis I love so, weed. yeah yeah so um i am not a weed smoker i have smoked weed many times in my life um but we're here in washington dc right now where uh, recreational cannabis has been legal since 2015 i believe um and so we have a lot I have a lot of listeners out there that um I think the vast majority of my listeners are not in DC and uh they come from all, you know types of backgrounds and stuff. So um do you think you could explain what the weed situation is in DC and say initiative seventy one is the name of the actual law? I believe I can pull that up and read it. But um you mentioned earlier that you could explain some of that stuff. So what's the situation here in District of Columbia?
0: Yeah. yeah. So you're correct. Initiative seventy one was a ballot initiative. Yeah. So for viewers, a ballot initiative means something that appears on the ballot that was initiated by voters. Hmm. So not every jurisdiction has this. Many states have it. That's how most states have legalized marijuana at the state level. And D.C. also has ballot initiatives. So a group of folks here in D.C., many of whom I know, got together and wrote the initiative and collected enough signatures to get it on the ballot. And then in the 2014 elections, it was passed with 70% of the vote. To, I like to say adult use, by the way, not recreational. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good to point, legalize adult use marijuana. Because, you know, wh- whether you're using it medicinally or not, you're not necessarily using it recreationally. I know that's sort of splitting hairs, mm. but there's also some political strategy to calling it adult use, because I think it's attractive to the crowd that maybe doesn't smoke marijuana and doesn't even care about marijuana, mm. but they do care about what you said earlier, which is having a government that doesn't tell them what they may or may not ingest or mm. do with their body. I think it's one way to target them. I think there are some folks that you lose when you say, oh, it's recreational, because they don't use cannabis and they not they don't really understand why many of us do. use. It. I use cannabis pretty much daily. Mm. Um, so here's the state of things in D.C. Cannabis is legal in the District of Columbia for possession up to, I believe, two ounces. It's also legal to cultivate marijuana in your home. As many as six plants can be flowering. Okay. You can have more than – I believe you can have six flowering plants and up to six plants that are still in the vegetative state okay. for people out there that know what I'm talking about. Yep. Basically, you can have clones. Mm-hmm. Um However, there is no system of tax and regulate here, so there are no legal cannabis businesses. Mm -hmm. So there are no dispensaries like there are in Colorado, Washington, or Massachusetts, for example. So there are no storefronts where you can go and buy marijuana. So D.C. sort of exists in what's, in a way, a gray market, for lack of a better term. So it's not a black market because cannabis is legal for possession and cultivation, but you also can't legally buy or sell it. Yeah. So the initiative explicitly says, though, that you may gift or exchange cannabis, and that's not only so that that's not only like, hey, Stephen, I grew this marijuana in my house, which is totally legal, and I want to gift you this ounce of it. That's part of it. Mm. But the reason the gifting language is in there, a lot of people don't realize this, is that's also maybe I'm enjoying a marijuana cigarette in the privacy of my own home with you. Mm. It's now also legal for me to pass that to you, okay right? Because that's also a form of gifting. Mm. Consuming marijuana is not legal in public, technically, yeah. but it is a civil citation, punishable yeah. with a
1: $25 fine. Okay. So you are it's not legal to go outside and smoke it in public, but it's decriminalized enough that you'll get a ticket and you won't have to go to court. You're not going to...
0: You don't have to go... You won't get arrested. Okay. You won't have to go to jail.
1: Okay. Um, but if you don't pay the ticket, you, one day that could be that could end in you having to go to court certainly or, yeah. will
0: cause some legal problems for yeah you, which you know i'm embarrassed to say i've never explored that yeah. part of it what happens if you just ignore the
1: 25 dollars ticket i'm not yeah. really sure that's a mm-hmm. good question okay and so so you can gift it and i've heard you know uh you know so i just looked this up and anyone who's li- listening in dc the the um the head shop capital hemp was one of the um Contributors to the old Proposition Nineteen that would have legalized it in in twenty ten, and I didn't know about that. That Capital Hemp was a part of that. Um, but... I love Capital Hemp; mm-hmm. they're very supportive of the advocacy community here yeah. in
0: D.C. and all over the country. And they actually, I hope they don't mind me saying this on you know on Live with you, but. They actually recently gave a very generous donation to my nonprofit, the Rights Restoration Project. Really, and I, I just happened to meet one of the owners of Capital Hemp at the National Cannabis Festival here in DC last month on mm-hmm. 420. Okay, and we, you know RRP, we were an exhibitor there and we're just talking about our work. And mm. um, he, you know, later looked us up online and gave a very generous gift. So okay. thank you to Capital Hemp cool. for supporting advocacy.
1: And, you know, I, we have a, I, some, you know, international listeners and people that are out west and stuff. And I get a lot of questions about just what the setup is, uh, is of D.C. And uh, north of us and kind of around us to the north and to the east is Maryland and to the um, to the south and to the west is Virginia. And it's um, – We're kind of
0: surrounded on three sides by Maryland. Right, exactly. And then the fourth
1: side by the Potomac
0: River. And if you cross that river, you're in Virginia. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and it, sorry, I just – I love geography.
1: No, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> for people – people will ask me about that all the time because – uh yeah, people don't know, you know, you get all kinds of questions about is DC part of Maryland and everyone knows it's not a state, but so in in Virginia it's illegal. Mm-hmm. Um and same in Maryland, but isn't it
0: It's illegal, but it's decriminalized yeah. for possession, I okay. believe. I believe you can have up to 1 ounce of flowers, okay. of cannabis flowers
1: in Maryland. Gotcha. Okay. And your fir- wasn't your first episode uh not the pilot, but your uh, your first episode was on Marijuana in D.C., correct? Yeah, okay, yes. cool.
0: I spoke with Caroline Phillips of the National Cannabis Festival, the, okay. a friend of mine, but also the the creator of that event mm. here in D.C. And, yeah, we, we just had a conversation about the state of cannabis here in D.C., and I asked her, can we really say that it's legal without a tax and regulate system in place? Mm. And you should go listen to the episode you can hear yeah. your answer and mine. Can I go back to the $25 ticket really quick? Sure, of I course. I feel like that was an opportunity to illustrate how something – like that is still related to like racial hierarchy. Mm. And we, we discussed this on the podcast with Caroline in that first episode too. Not only are most of the people who get that $25 ticket African-American, something like 90%, even though a little bit under 50% of the city is African-American, most of the people who get that ticket are black people. So the, the racial disparity in enforcement is still present. It's great that people aren't just being willy-nilly arrested like they were before. But it's also an economic injustice issue because if you, since you can't smoke in public, well, who's more likely to be smoking outside to even get caught by a police officer in the first place? Someone who is renting rather mm. than owning property because maybe it's in your lease that you can't smoke inside. Maybe you live in an apartment and you can't smoke inside because you're afraid that your neighbors will smell it or you don't want to disturb your neighbors. Maybe you live with children or an elderly relative and you don't want to be smoking indoors around them. Um. And you're more likely to be engaged in that activity out. So basically, you're more likely to be engaged in smoking outdoors if you are a poor apartment, dre- apartment dwelling black or brown person. And so even though the enforcement may not be as draconian as it was before, we still haven't fixed the problem of racial hierarchy in enforcement. And we still haven't fixed the problem of economic hierarchy based on class and race you know, in when it comes to housing or when it comes to property ownership. Right. And so those, that's what I mean when I say all of those things are interconnected, mm. like it's neat that weeds legal. And then I, I love having the freedom of knowing I'm not going to be arrested and put through what I was put through 10 years ago, but like the racial injustice and economic injustice piece is still there. Mm. And that's
1: the thing that we really need to be focused on chipping away at. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and, and in DC, the, um, the last, you know, 10 years, um, Housing prices have gone up a ton, and it's very, very hard to own own property in DC. It's, I mean, it's hard to rent. It's hard to rent. But I mean, everything's so expensive, and that's a I, it's a really good point about you know being you know a, rent, a renter being more likely to be uh, using uh, outside. And yeah, like, what if yeah. you're
0: a veteran? So you're let, let's say you're a combat
1: veteran who yeah. has
0: PTSD, and you're using cannabis to try to alleviate some of the symptoms of that.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of veterans in DC as well. Yeah, and you live yeah. in public housing. Yeah.
0: Well, who owns your public housing? The federal government. Right. At what level is marijuana still 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 prohibited as a Schedule One narcotic? uh, For 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 viewers, I I feel like I'm stealing your role to explain to viewers what we're talking about. But for viewers, marijuana or can I prefer saying cannabis? Cannabis is is classified. We can talk about whether or not it is better because I've heard really good arguments both ways. (laughs) But cannabis is a Schedule One narcotic according to the federal government, according to the Drug Enforcement Administration or DEA, which means. It has a high propensity for addiction and no medicinal value. Um, But the other thing is, I don't like to... A lot of people, when they say this publicly, I'm sure most people watching this have heard that before. Mm. I don't like to add on, it's classified with other drugs like heroin and just whatever else is Schedule 1. Yep. Um, Because I don't want to demonize those substances either because heroin also has medicinal value. What do you think painkillers are? They're synthetic opioids, right? So... There are very few
1: substances, if any, that should be Schedule One, in my opinion, under the definition of it. Hmm. Man, I mean, it's just like it. Se- it just seems like, uh, even for a person that doesn't has never smoked, never used, doesn't really think about it, just seems like it being a Schedule One is such a slam dunk that I just I don't I I get it, but I don't get it. Like I I know that it's it's got a history, and, and you know, in the in the turn of the you know nineteenth to twentieth century, there was a a you know, a huge demonization of weed and, you know, it comes from that history. So I know why it's there, but at the end of the day, it just seems like such a slam dunk when you think about, like you said, veterans and, um, people using it for medicinal value cancer. And it, it's just so factually wrong that it doesn't have medicinal value that it's just like, why is it still there other than for political reasons and historical bullshit. And I don't know it's a shame. I don't know. It just makes it's my, raging, right? it makes like, my it's head so hurt. Yeah. It makes my head hurt. And that's something that, you know, you mentioned, you know, racial groups and stuff like, that. but it, you know, like regardless of group, I mean, medicine is medicine, man. And it's just like, it, it's so ridiculous that it's a schedule one, but, um, and you know, That brings into kind of a conflict of D.C. and uh, probably people out there, a lot of people don't understand that D.C. um, is not the same thing as the federal government, but we still have public housing that's owned by the federal government in D.C. And there's this overlap of I think that was one of the things that Obama, I don't know whether it was a proposal, but he essentially stopped prosecuting. Um, on a fe- is that what on a, he stopped prosecuting on? It, it was something like he stopped marijuana raids by federal. I wish I had this prepared in front of me, but it was, it, it was some kind of good move that Obama did. That he he stopped federally prosecuting certain amounts of weed um, in DC before it was legal. Um, but do you know what I'm talking about? Am I just making shit up?
0: So <laughs> I don't think you're making things up. <laughs> I moved here. In 2014, okay, like I so mentioned that's right before, right So before, I, I didn't okay. move here planning like, oh, cannabis is going to be legal there. Yeah. So like, like, I, hmm, it wasn't, why, it wasn't where necessarily can I go on there? my radar. <laughs> and then like right when I moved here, I was like, oh, there's a campaign nice, to legalize yeah. marijuana. So it was, it was neat. It was really good timing for me as an activist and yeah. just as a resident of the city. Cool. But right before I moved here in April of 2014, marijuana possession was decriminalized in Washington, D.C. by Washington, D.C.'s city council. Mm. And what Stephen was talking about earlier for, for viewers – before, before 1970, think about this, D.C. has only had a city council since 1970. Before that, it was just Congress that would say yes or no to, to city-level ordinances. Mm. So we have a city council and a mayor now that passes ordinances and laws which affect the District of Columbia much in the same way that a state would. Mm. So like our governor and our city council's job is as similar to or excuse me—our mayor and city council's jobs in Washington, D.C., is more similar or as similar to a governor and a state legislature as it is to a mayor and a city council, mm. even though D.C. is not a state. Right. But what happens is whenever the city council and the mayor pass any type of law or ordinance in the District of Columbia, because this is, federal, is federal jurisdic- a federal jurisdiction, the Congress may choose to intervene in that. So there's a ninety day period after passage of a law or ordinance where the Congress can review it. Okay. So a lot of time the Congress just declines to review what's happening. Okay. But what's been happening since 2014 is there's a Republican congressman from Maryland, mm-hmm. my, my now my home state. The only now the only Republican representing any of the districts in Maryland in the House of Representatives, the rest are Democrats. He attaches a rider to the federal budget, which is an appropriations bill. So each year the Congress has to pass it, bu- or Is supposed to pass a budget. Our political system is so messed up right now that they typically don't actually pass a budget. Mm. But they pass a budget where they pass different appropriations measures. And what Mr. Harris has been doing is he attaches an amendment, essentially, but what's called a rider to the federal appropriations, which has to pass. You can't not pass appropriations packages or you're not funding the federal government. Mm -hmm. They just attach something to that which can't be severed from it. It's not severable. That just says, we prohibit the District of Columbia from spending any money implementing their law. So that's why we don't have dispensaries here, and we don't have marijuana businesses here. It's because Congress won't allow the city to spend any money. Mm. So that means the city can't set up any type of regulatory oversight or issue business licenses or do any of those things. Of course, we do have medical dispensaries here, but that exists under the medical program, and it's quite limited.
1: Right. Yeah, there's one a block away. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, there's one that's the Tacoma Wellness Center, which
0: is the uh, the sponsor of. So I, I have two housemates that are attorneys here in the D.C. area, and they play on a softball team called the One Hitters, which is mostly—I <laughs> know it's great, right? It's it, it's mostly comprised of folks who work in the drug policy reform community. They're one of the best teams in the league too. But their their business sponsor is Tacoma Wellness Dispensary here cool. in D.C. So shout out to the One Hitters and to Tacoma Wellness.
1: Yeah, cool. Um, so you mentioned uh, D.C. Cannabis Festival that was on 420, and you had uh, um an episode of your podcast where you kind of did quick interviews. Yeah. With, uh, why don't you talk about that? Like, how was that? I liked that episode. That was cool. Yeah, it was, yeah. Re-
0: it was a really fun format. I basically just walked around all day with my Zoom recorder and two mics, mm-hmm. and I would just either walk up to folks that I – recognize or i would just approach different vendors there or i would just approach people in the crowd and be like hey do you want to be on the do you want to be on a podcast Mm -hmm. and i would essentially just ask each person who are you and what brought you to the the festival today kind of leave it a little bit open-ended for them Mm. and yeah i hope folks will go back and listen to that one it's it's a little bit it's a much different not a little bit it's a much different format typically our episodes are just a one-on-one interview right but this was more of a rapid fire 30 second to 90 second rapid fire interviews of people just answering those two questions of who they are and why they're at the festival. And cool. you get a very eclectic range of responses. It was pretty fun to put together. <laughs> I, we actually, I actually had about 60 of those interviews and we had to cut about a third of them because wow. it was kind of windy. And yeah. so the sound quality wasn't okay. great. But yeah.
1: Cool. Where was it?
0: It's at RFK stadium here in Washington, DC. <laughs> it's not inside the stadium, yeah. but it's uh it's near there is where the, the festival has been for the last four years. Mm. The fifth one is coming up next
1: April. So it's
0: always like the third Saturday in April. Mm -hmm. And I think this was the first... Yeah, this was the first year that it actually landed on 420, which was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, nice. Wow, that's really... Yeah, so anyone should definitely check out Prohibited Podcast. I mean, there's some... uh... The, you know, it's really informative. The people you get to talk to. Um, I don't know. I, you did an episode on psilocybin. Um, and when is a when is season two going to come out? You mentioned this before mm-hmm. when we were on air, but yeah, when is that happening?
0: Yeah, so we're planning on doing two seasons per calendar year at this point. Okay. So we've got several more episodes coming. Season one, and once we get to episode twelve, we'll go quiet for a few months, uh, and I'll be sure to announce you know some more concrete dates on the show for, for folks out there that want to check it out. But if you haven't listened, uh, we've put out, I think, nine episodes so far. So like Stephen said earlier, please go check out prohibitedpodcast.com. Cool. And you can listen to any of the episodes we've already done. Also, uh, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Um, we don't make any money off the podcast. We make a couple hundred bucks a month and that pays for our web hosting and mm-hmm. equipment. And then the rest of the money, we just sink back into the podcast. So cool. to try to grow the audience. So we're doing this, um, out of a labor of love and I, yeah. ho- I hope folks like it.
1: Cool, man. I mean, so yeah, the, we're, uh, you know, we're not going to wrap up right now because I have one more subject to talk about. And yeah. actually it's but the one that's the most interesting to me. Um, is, uh, so th- it says I'm up on the website right now for people to see. And for people just listening, it says, uh, the dread pirate Roberts life in a prison, uh, for a website. And you know, one of the things i don't know i guess you you know injustice like you talked about earlier is you know it's runs rampant in the world we live in and uh one of the things that i have followed closely over the last 10 years is uh whistleblowers you know mm-hmm. uh chelsea manning uh edward snowden you know, julian assange and i don't know um i don't i don't you know obviously the dread pirate pirate Roberts case isn 't like a whistleblower, but it's it's so, someone vastly misunderstood you know because you know even before I listened to your episode um I still thought that the dread pirate Roberts was one person, and that 's one thing that was explained on your program that it kind of wasn 't i mean so why don't you um you know, you know, I, this I want this to be a standalone a thing, an episode that can stand alone on its own. Yeah. And so, why don't you explain what you know? Pirate Bay, Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, Ross Ulbricht—that whole free Ross situation—for people that don't know about it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I also want to plug another podcast, which is is now has been wrapped up. But I actually first learned about this story from this week in drugs. Which, full disclosure, I know the people who produced that podcast. The co-host is my housemate right but one of the reasons i i did it went a different direction because i didn't want to remake their podcast Mm. right which but i i this was my favorite podcast for a long time and i was so sad that it was off the air that i was like well i i want to i want to sort of follow in its footsteps because everyone who made this podcast are also alumni of ssdp Mm. right like not only is this organization part of my activist identity, but it's become, you know, my my family, my my friends, my, a, friends, yeah, my yeah, family, community. Yeah. People that I literally, you know, share a home with. Yeah. But so okay, Dread Pirate Roberts. So I first heard about this story on season 1 of This Week in Drugs. I think it's the 7th episode called Where the Silk Road Ends. Mm. And they also
1: Oh, I'm sorry about that. I said the Pirate Bay earlier. Did I say oh, that? Yeah, you did not I'm even sorry catch about that. that. Pirate Bay is a is a BitTorrent website where you can download movies and shit. So the Silk Road was the, the name Silk of it. Road. I loved like Pirate Robertson with Pirate Bay. Yeah, so the Silk Road. I'm sorry about that. Continue. Yeah, Love yeah, it. no, thank you. I didn't even catch that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, So
0: they they called their episode where the Silk Road ends, okay. which I think was a great episode. But they, they interviewed Lynn Ulbricht, mm-hmm. Ra, who is raw. We haven't said who these people are. Yeah. So I'll I'll get to that in a second. Sorry. Yeah. Be patient with us folks. Yeah. yeah. So um but I listened to that episode and I learned the story of Ross Albrecht, who I don't know how old he is now, but he's in his late 20s. Mm. He has now been in prison for about five or six years and he was convicted of some charges related to the creation of the Silk Road website. So the Silk Road website was an online marketplace which used, Bit- I think only Bitcoin, I'm not sure if there were other types of cryptocurrencies being used there. I've never, I never used the Silk Road, so I didn't know much about it. But folks could buy and sell things using Bitcoin on the Silk Road. And there were some things, interestingly enough, that were prohibited. Like you couldn't, you couldn't buy and sell like child pornography yeah. and things like, like that, for example. But the purpose of this website was not to buy and sell drugs. It was to demonstrate that there could be an online place, marketplace that operated outside of the traditional monetary system and outside of traditional forms of currency. Hmm. And, you know, that's a threat to the global economic order. You know, Mm. cryptocurrency, in many ways, is a threat to the global economic order. And I think that's part of why it got attention. But the other reason Mm. the Silk Road got attention is because, since drugs are prohibited, this was a way for there to be some sort of informal marketplace where folks could buy and sell drugs if that's what they were seeking to do. Mm. Interestingly, this actually made the drugs safer. Mm. So I've even... I'm going to go on a little rabbit trail here, but I've even seen... um, I've been to drug policy reform conferences where I saw Ross's dad speak on a panel with some researchers from United States, Australia, New Zealand, a couple different countries. And they studied what's called the dark web or the deep web of which you could say the Silk Road was one of the websites that's part of the dark web or Mm -hmm. was part of the dark web. The reason a lot of drugs are bought and sold there is because it's in the black market. But also one of the things they found was it actually made it safer because... If if you are producing methamphetamine illegally, or you're producing methyl dioxy methamphetamine, what most people call ecstasy or MDMA, and you're trying to sell that to people, and I, I from another part of the world, can buy it directly from you online, it's only changing hands once, theoretically. Mm. And one of the problems with the black market is whenever a substance changes hands, each time it changes hands, that person who's receiving it and then selling it to somebody else From the point, like there's a whole chain, right? Mm. From the producer to the consumer of the substance. And each time it changes hands, each person has a financial incentive to adulterate it. Yeah. Because that's how they make, they increase their personal profit margin. Yeah, cutting. Yeah, yeah, cutting. Thank you. So there was less adulteration happening, which actually made one researcher, I think she was from Australia, basically said statistically 100% of the MDMA that she tested that they acquired from the dark web was not adulterated with anything. And if you compare that to "quote unquote" street drugs, yeah. if you look at organizations like the Bunk Police or Dance Safe, I'm about to do an episode with Dance Safe on my podcast, by the way. Mm. Sometimes, in, in certain places, as many more than fifty percent of MDMA slash ecstasy is adulterated, mm. so it actually made it safer. Okay, but back to the whole point. Mm. The point of the Silk Road was not to buy and sell drugs. It was to show that there can be this alternative marketplace. Eventually, Ross ended up being arrested. And basically, villainized in the media and charged with being this basically a drug kingpin. Mm. And folks who have seen The Princess Bride, you know the movie Princess Bride, right? Mm-hmm. It's a great film, very classic. Yeah, Most yeah. people have seen it. <laughs> the Dread Pirate Roberts is one of the characters. Right. And the, this is the irony in like Ross being charged with being the Dread Pirate Roberts. Anyone who, is admi- who was an administer of the, administrator of the Silk Road site would be signed in under the moniker the Dread Pirate Roberts. Yeah. The character in the movie is called that. Like, the main character of the film, I'm mm. forgetting the character's name, but he, ex- he be- becomes the Dread Pirate Roberts, mm. and he explains, oh, there used to be another Dread Pirate Roberts, and when he became rich enough, he retired, and then I'm his replacement. And when I'm done being the Dread Pirate Roberts, I'll retire, and somebody else will be my replacement. The whole point of calling the it Dread Pirate Roberts name, yeah. is because there's multiple people. Okay, uh. right? So that, I mean... I, <laughs> That in, itself, in and of itself shows you that there are multiple people. Here's the real kicker, and please go listen to the episode. Yeah. Both, either mine or, or both. Listen to This Week in Drugs, too, because they're a little bit different. Mm. And Plus, mine's happening three years later, so you're hearing like kind of an update. Cool. So, not only was Ross charged with being all the Dread Pirate Roberts, even though he wasn't, some of the Dread Pirate Roberts were federal investigators who are now in prison for stealing Bitcoin from the site because they had access to all the records and all the transactions and everything. But, of course, the jury in Ross's trial was not allowed to hear that. So there was a bunch of things that the the jury didn't get to hear. And also, ju- uh, even though Ross was not charged with a bunch of other crimes, the prosecutor was given a bunch of leniency to say that Ross was involved in like conspiracies to try to get people murdered. Yeah, and, like, that's what you heard all from the kinds media. Of stuff. Yeah, it's, yes. oh, so. so all kinds of things that Ross was not actually charged with, that not only did the prosecutor get to talk, to, talk about in front of the jury – The judge also brought those things up when handing down the sentence. So she was like basically saying, I'm sentencing things for you that you are not charged with and we haven't proved are true. And that was her justification for giving Ross a double life sentence plus 40 years with no possibility of parole. So, uh, you know, I can't think of a more draconian sentence for any type of charge.
1: It's a hit job. Exactly. It's a hit job. Yeah, dude. So he's a double life sentence dude that makes my brain hurt so badly, right. like oh man, so like in and, and so the 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 whole you know there's a you know there's a free Ross campaign that's like check a out
0: FreeRoss.org or go, go on any social media platform and type in hashtag free Ross and you'll be able to get connected to that The most important action item right now is if you go to the FreeRoss.org website, you can sign a letter which urges I believe the letter is to um, encourage the Department of Justice slash the Trump administration to grant clemency to Ross Ulbricht, who, you know, is going to spend the rest of his life in prison unless he gets clemency from from the president.
1: Ugh. And so you interviewed his mom. That's I interviewed Lynn. his mom, okay, gotcha. who, of
0: course, you know, his his mother and really his whole family in some ways have have now become activists against the drug war and against, uh, you know, privacy and, and, you know, all the all the issue areas that touch Ross's case. His family. I mean, this has altered their lives forever because they don't want to see their son, their brother, their grandson, their cousin, their nephew in prison for the rest of his life. For what is, by the way, even if he's even if he's guilty, even if he were guilty of everything that he was charged with, they're all nonviolent crimes and they're all yeah. victims. Who's the victim? Yeah. There was no victim named at trial, and yet he has life in prison twice plus forty years. Um, that's that's literally insane. Yeah. Right. And so his whole family, um, you know, and they have. You know, they're upper middle class white folks from as far as I can tell. They, they operate in the world with a certain degree of privilege and they acknowledge that. And so one of the things that I find so amazingly just like inspiring, especially with Ross's mother, um, she's become this force of nature mm. who now is not only an activist trying to get her son out of prison, but she's having a real world impact on highlighting the stories of so many other nonviolent People who, so many other people who are in prison for life or have other draconian sentences for nonviolent crimes, like mm-hmm. Ross does. And she understands that as an upper middle class white woman, she's given a platform that a lot of people don't get to have. And I really, just one of the things I love about her and that I love about Ross too is like they don't only talk about Ross's story. They've, they've, allowed themselves to make it this bigger thing to try to generate a conversation about ending mandatory minimums and giving judges discretion and giving you know just making the justice
1: system more just. Yeah. And that's a, yeah that's one of the one of the cool things about advocacy and activism is it usually starts from uh and this is I'm not using this word in a bad way like it start, starts from like a selfish perspective like you, your own personal or like a, maybe a personal would be a better word but it, when you you know if you help a person like this you're helping all people that have i mean this is so unjust that you know if you and it, it seems like it's i don't know it's just good that it's the most high profile example of this mm-hmm. and that will filter on until everything else and so um i don't know what was it like talking to her like describe you know like your experience just doing that podcast with her you said that you, we talked about the <laughs> method of which you did it before yeah. but yeah what was that like
0: well i I've had the opportunity to meet Lynn Albrecht Mm -hmm. in person a few times, Okay, uh, both at like SSDP conferences and other drug, drug policy reform related conferences. So Mm -hmm. we know each other. Um, We're 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 acquainted. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we were in contact via email for a while before we did the interview. And basically I just, much like we're doing right now, I was in my home office in my bedroom um, interviewing her from there. And she was in Colorado at the time, which I mentioned, like this has had a huge impact on their family, by the way, like, they're not, they're from Austin, Texas, I believe, and Lynn has moved now across the country twice, once to once to New York to mm-hmm. be there for, like, Ross's imprisonment there in yeah. his trial, because he was tried in New York under SDNY, um, the Southern District of New York. So, by the way, we can talk about this later, but if you want to talk crap about Preet Bharara and Chuck Schumer, even though I'm on the left, like, I hope, I, I'm i sure people can tell that by now, mm-hmm. Preet Bharara and Chuck Schumer, who are established Democrats, were, like, personally involved in making sure that Ross got convicted. Yeah. Um so again it wasn't like war on drugs conservatives. It yeah. was mainstream liberals that yeah. were responsible for this from from in terms of like who was in power seeing that this was getting done. It was the, the the majority leader of the Senate, right? Or the current majority leader of the Senate. I got us a little off track there. Sorry. That's fine. But, um so what was it like to interview her? As I told you before, full disclosure, I'm I'm totally fine to be honest. I was I I you told me that that was your favorite episode Yeah. and, and I told 100%. my response to you was not that it's my least favorite, but I felt like that was my worst interview mm-hmm. as an interviewer because I was not at my best. I was, you know, underslept, underfed, and like had just, you know, I think I'd been up for le- been awake for less than an hour. It was like on the weekend. I think we did the interview at like eleven a.m. and I woke up at like ten thirty. Yeah. And maybe had had a little bit to drink the night before, yeah. so I didn't feel a hundred percent. But I've had I've had other people contact me, you know, folks that I know, and say that that was their favorite episode as well. Yeah. So I hope folks will listen to it.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, oh, man. Yeah, and that's... thanks for the platform to be able to showcase it as sure, well. Sure, yeah, of course. I mean, that's, you know, I, I get a lot I have a lot of listeners uh ho- hopefully have a lot of listeners that um that just are concerned with injustice and when people get these uh smear jobs, I mean and, and when the media's in on it too. And, and like I, I and to be honest, I fell for it at the time. I mean, I didn't know I looked into the Olbrick case I guess starting about a year ago, once I, but when it when it happened at the time, I was I didn't make a decision in my own mind on it, but I was just like, oh, this guy. I was like, is this guy an assassin? Like that's what you're hearing from the media. Right. Like it was like a conspiracy to murder. Um, he's selling. He know. was a mob boss, basically. Dude, that, their case was that he was a racketeer, mob boss, dude. Right,
0: widely... he was Al Capone, the Al Capone of the internet
1: so widely misunderstood and and when there's these people out there that it, it you know like i think we mentioned earlier in the podcast or maybe before that you know i like to think if people just have correct information it'll change a lot and so that's what i kind of thrive on is just like i can't believe how bad the facts were misrepresent misrepresented like regard like you know morality can be sometimes subjective you I mean like if you're talking about killing a person hope, hopefully that's not subjective mm-hmm. um but you you know, people can talk all day about whether, you know, people sh- like meth should be legal or not. But it's just the, the facts of this case are – were. it's just media lies. And, and... Well, think about the most –
0: sorry. Think about the most intractable issues. Like
1: prohibit
0: – if if you're saying – if the measure for whether or not prohibition works is it prevents the thing from happening, yeah. then prohibition of murder doesn't work either. Yeah. Does that mean that we should not have laws prohibiting murder? Yeah. Well, I don't think so. That's a good point. Right? So, yeah. like – Obviously, there's a line somewhere mm-hmm. for each different, quote-unquote, issue area, yep. and and they land in different places, mm. right? So, like, I think murder, obviously, is a great example of, like, one of the things I'm trying to pinpoint
1: on the podcast. Mm. Interesting, yeah. So, I mean, I, like, I, like, I don't know. People might like the other episodes more or not, but I think everyone out there should listen to that just to get a handle on this one case um, because, you know, I know if you walked up to – I mean, a lot of people that are older probably never even heard of this case, and mm-hmm. which is a problem in itself. But and people... if they have
0: heard about it, they've seen the news stories about how this Internet drug king got arrested and tried to kill people.
1: Yeah, man, that's insane. So that's uh, – everyone should check that out. And I didn't know about the This Week in Drugs episode. I'll definitely go and check that out. And that's cool that there's a three-year gap. And mm-hmm. can you – um I, you might have said it earlier, but when was the actual – Um, When did he actually get arrested? What year was that?
0: Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head, Mm -hmm. but I think it was around 2012, 2012. 2013. At the time of my interview with Lynn, which would have been in early 2019, I believe at that point she said Ross had been in prison for six years or it had been six years since his arrest, right? Like, because he, because his trial lasted for some number of months. So, you know, he was in jail the whole time during, you know, before leading up to during the trial before his sentencing.
1: (laughs) This makes my brain hurt so bad. You know, because they, like,
0: I, I believe the reason is they characterized him as a flight risk. Is that he's going to try to flee the country. Yeah. Which, by the way, I, I, I have no idea whether he would have tried to flee the yeah. country or not. But I personally, in my personal opinion, that would have been a rational decision. mm yeah. Wouldn't have been legal, but it would have been rational.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, based given, on the sentence that he was given. So double life, wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I signed the peti- petition. I invite everyone else out to do that. It seems like kind of a, a slam dunk, and and you know. please share it. Also, Yeah. tell like, people. Yeah, I
0: know. Every time someone shares something on social media, they're like, "Hey, go sign this thing," but you have to share it. Please yeah. share yeah. it. Like even it, it takes x number of seconds, and. Anyway, I, don't, I guess I'm, I'm assuming I don't have to convince your audience to go do this, but like seriously, guys, guys and gals, and and non-gender conforming people, if you're listening to my voice right now and if you're seeing my face, please go sign this petition and share it. Yeah, I just want you to think about. What it must—I can't even imagine what it's like for him, and the family, knowing that, and like believing move, that he's yeah. never going to get out of prison, Dude. that he's going to send. Unreal. What, if, what if he lives to be ninety years old? Unreal. Is, is he really going to spend seventy-five, you know, sixty-five, seventy-five years in prison for this website? So, like, if if you would want people, if if you were in his position, you would want people to go sign the petition. So I've said enough, please yeah. go do it right now. Free stop you, you can even yeah. stop listening to me if you want to yeah. right now and navigate away from
1: this and go do it. Yeah. Wow. So I don't know. So I think we're going to wrap up pretty soon and that's an amazing story, but I've, I've just one more question for please. you. So what, what have you, you know, you kind of touched on this earlier, but what have you learned the most making your podcast? I mean, you said you had some information before you've kind of come a long way on that. Mm. So yeah, what have you learned the most? What has been the toughest part about it? And uh, we touched on seasons earlier. You know, everyone should check out second season whenever that comes out. But yeah, what have you learned the most, and what has been the toughest part of the podcast?
0: Yeah. Wow. Great question. I mean, I've only been at it since I think November of 2018. Okay. So what? Seven months. Yeah. Yeah. Here's what I maybe didn't realize going into it Mm. right away was that being the host of a podcast, I was like, oh, I'm now also a producer. I'm a writer, I'm an editor, yeah. and I'm a marketer. Right. Yeah. And so unless you have a team of people, which I do, right? Mm. We have one person who designed and built our website and does a lot of our digital assets. And we have we've got two, you know, two guys that do all of the editing and then in Kevin's case also provides the music for mm. the play. It's all original music. KCap beats on Twitter, yeah, by the way, that's if you right. want to check out Kevin. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean I do have a team of people, but you know, even just with my with our with our little show that gets X hundreds of numbers of downloads each week. Um, I, I we could have twenty people working on this. Mm. You know, if we were, if we want, if we were year round, we just put out a show every week. We could easily have ten, twenty people working
1: on it. Mm. I think. So. Okay, gotcha. And what about? Yeah. What and so? Oh, so what did I
0: learn? Yeah. What did you um, learn yeah, a lot yeah, about work. the
1: content? Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of work. And but like, so you? you I guess I mean, I want you to expound on like, like, how, what your views on prohibition, how they've changed. Oh. You know, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, full disclosure, I'm not sure that they have. Okay. I. I. I but. But I'm not, you know, I don't have a, an entrenched position on each thing.
1: Yeah, right? there's like, different things that are prohibited. Exactly. Yeah, sure.
0: Um, maybe some of the most salient ones right now. Uh, it goes back to the point I was making before, like for people who think prohibition works, to me, works means it's preventing the activity that you're trying to prohibit it. Yeah. So like right now, we're seeing a, a legislative effort in states to restrict abortion rights mm-hmm. or to restrict abortion access. Even if, even if you have strongly held beliefs that women should not be allowed to... that, that if, you have, if you believe that abortion should be illegal, then that means that you think the government has the right to compel a woman to carry a pregnancy and you know, to term and then give birth, right? That's the implication of that form of prohibition. So even if you're doing it for strongly held beliefs, not only is that weird that you think the government has the power to do that, but prohibiting the uh, prohibiting abortions doesn't prevent them from happening. So just like with drugs or sex work, when you prohibit it, you're making everyone less safe. Because women will still seek abortions and they'll have to do so in a black market or in a way that's unsafe for them. And so prohibiting of abortions, even even if people who are quote unquote pro-life are correct, prohibiting abortions seems to be the ant- the opposite of what they what their where their values where their stated values come from, which is protecting life and making people safe. Hmm. Um, prohibition does the prohibition of abortion does the opposite
1: of that. Hmm. Okay, I got gotcha. you. All right. Well, um, last question, I guess. Doesn't it? Uh, I, I I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm gonna think about. It. I'll go back and listen to the podcast, and um, I don't know. Um, do you have any plans to start like uh, to make videos or do live streaming with your um, with your channel at all? Like, I I don't think you guys have a YouTube channel, right? We don't yet. Okay,
0: we've we've talked about it some. One of the things that I like about how we're doing it now is I'm mobile because I can just carry yeah. a recorder like yeah, literally yeah, yeah. in my hand with that's awesome microphones. But um, yeah, I've thought about it. Uh, one of the things that's nice about not doing a video live stream is like if this if I were doing my show right now, I could be. In my underwear. Yeah, which I and, am, and by no. the way. <laughs> I am too, but I have other clothes on yeah. over that. But you know, like I, I don't. I could be unshowered and just at my house doing my thing, doing an interview if I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Whereas if when I, if I'm video, I can't do that. Cool. But my one of my teammate, my team members. Uh, is is really pushing us
1: starting to do some more Instagram live yeah. stuff, okay, and maybe even some Facebook live. Yeah, yeah. So watch for that. Sweet. Yeah. All right, that's awesome. So we're all out of time. Why don't you uh, just uh, you know all of your information, or uh, as much as we talked about, is in the show description. Why don't you plug your podcast and your Twitter like that one more time, and we'll we'll sign off. Okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the best way to find. Not only my podcast, but also some of the organizations we talked about, like Students for Sensible Drug Policy and my nonprofit, the Rights Restoration Project. If you just go to my Twitter, which is at Scott Cecil, S-C-O-T-T-C-E-C-I-L, there are links to the podcast's Twitter and SSDP's Twitter and Rights Restorations Project's Twitter mm. in my. My Twitter description. Okay. Um, but then, of course, go to those websites that we talked about earlier, and uh, feel free to DM me on Twitter. I'll try to respond as quickly as I can. All Hope right. to hear
1: from some of you guys. Sweet. All right. Thanks Scott. for having me yeah, too. Definitely, it was great. Yeah, in house, usually we do just video live stream uh, across the country and stuff like that. But yeah, you're in my apartment. And it's good to have you here, and I don't know, it's a good conversation. Yeah, thanks, That was man. great. That was real, that was a blast. All I appreciate right. it. Sweet. So thanks everyone who check this out today, and also the ones that check us out after today. That was Call Me Ignorant. You can ca- catch my stream the daily ignoramus every weekday follow me on twitter at ignoramus steve send me an email at steven ignoramus at gmail.com i am steven ignoramus my guest today was scott cecil of prohibited podcast please check his out check out his work wherever wherever podcasts are found hope everyone enjoyed this conversation go inform yourselves peace out